Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. A new year means a new round of potential taxonomic changes from the AOS North American Classification Committee. They have released the first two, what are usually three or four packets of potential changes. And while the committee's purview extends all the way down to Panama and frequently is very Mesoamerica heavy, there's a lot this time around that affects birds in the ABA area, that being the US and Canada. The reason for this probably has to do with the ongoing WGAC effort that is the Working Group on Avian Checklists, basically a summit, a multi-year summit, that has included all the major global bird taxonomy authorities in an effort to come up with a shared global taxonomy. For those who are perhaps new to all this, there are a few different bird taxonomy authorities, namely eBird, Clements, that's one you've probably heard of, the AOS, from which the American Birding Association checklist is derived, and the IOC, which is popular in Europe, Asia, Australia, Africa. And they all basically answer the question of what is a species a little bit differently. Uh, Some populations that we might consider subspecies are in fact considered full species by other authorities. A good example of that would be Myrtle and Audubon's warbler, which we in the US and Canada know as yellow-rumped warbler, but the IOC, for instance, considers them two separate species. The WGAC consists of representatives from all those groups, and their final report is due at the end of this coming year. And we sort of get a sneak peek of what they've been discussing by looking at these proposals, because many of them have been submitted to the AOS NACC because they have been presumably accepted by that working group. Notably, many of them from the last couple of years have not passed the AOS NACC, which suggests that we might see some significant differences between, say, eBird and the AOS ABA checklist down the road. But all that is for later in the year. Right now, we can look at some of the proposals for what they might mean for U.S. and Canadian birders. And there are some interesting ones, to be sure, like following eBird's split of the cattle egrets into Western and Eastern. That adds the species to the ABA area. Interestingly, we have records of Eastern cattle egret in Alaska. Splitting Cory's shearwater, which means full species recognition for what we know as Scopoli's shearwater or Scopoli's shearwater a rare but regular bird in the Western Atlantic. Finally, splitting American and European herring gulls. Fun for gull fans who were so sad at the loss of Thayer's gull. Splitting Atlantic and Pacific brown boobies. Lumping red poles. Bye-bye, Hori. Splitting the green-winged teal along old world, new world lines as they were many decades ago. And perhaps most interestingly, at least to me, full species recognition for the West Coast red-shouldered hawk the geographically isolated and very colorful elegans subspecies, which I guess would be called red-bellied hawk, but I dare them to call it elegant hawk. There are others. The link is in the show notes if you want to dig deep, and we'll certainly discuss some of those later on in the year when we finally see all the 2024 proposals and invite our friend Nick Block on to talk about it. And I should be clear, 
that these are just proposals. There's some fun taxonomic news in them. Kind of get a glimpse of what's going on in bird science, but there's no way to be certain about what passes and what doesn't until the final supplement comes out this summer, which we always eagerly await. On the show this week, shorebird migration is inherently dramatic and an irresistible story for filmmakers. Randall Wood's recent film on the migrations of three species of shorebirds and the scientists working to study them and save them is called Flyways. It aired last night, if you're listening to this on the Thursday it comes out, on PBS's Nature series. He joins me to talk about making the film after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the beginning of February 2024. It's been a week for green-breasted mango in the ABA area. Two of these flashy neotropical hummingbirds were seen of late, one from South Texas, because, of course, rare birds are still showing up in South Texas, and another at a private residence in Terrebonne Parish, Louisiana. There are fewer than a dozen records in the ABA area of this species, most from Texas, but the bird has turned up in such widely distributed areas as North Carolina and Wisconsin. Green-breasted mangoes in eastern Mexico, which is likely where these birds originated, are migratory, and records from February through August likely reflect birds that misoriented at the end of the breeding season. This theory is backed by the observation that most records in the ABA area are represented by first-year birds, as, in fact, were both the recent Louisiana and Texas individuals. That is the highlight for the past week. For the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook or on ABA Community. The epic voyages of migratory shorebirds are practically cinematic in their scope, so it is no surprise that they would make an attractive subject for a nature documentarian. Randall Wood is my guest. He's the award-winning writer, director, and producer of Flyways, the untold story of migratory shorebirds, which aired in the United States on the PBS program Nature just recently. It focuses on the incredible journeys of three long-distance migrants and the researchers racing against time to preserve these birds and this incredible phenomenon. Welcome, Randall. It's a really beautiful documentary. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I want to talk to you about this program and the work of creating nature documentaries sort of more generally. But first, what drew you to these birds and this story? So I was very lucky to grow up on a farm, partially, um, right next to the ocean, to the sea. And in that bay, um, Morton Bay, I found my grandmother in love with birds, telling me a lot to learn about birds. So she introduced me to shorebirds, birds that migrate basically from land, um, the edges of edges of, of um, mudflats, all the way from Australia right up to Russia and back. And I became quite intrigued by these birds. Many years later, I became a sailor and loved sailing my boat. And I was sailing around Morton Bay and discovered that there's a massive development right on the territory of the far eastern curlew which is a critically endangered bird. So it seemed to be like a logical thing to sort of start to explore what was the science underpinning that, how threatened were these birds, and why were people building 3,600 apartments right on top of their territory? So this story started out from that sort of very local um, perspective, but it quickly broadened out to become a very global film because the more you research shorebirds, of course, the more you realize that you are not talking about just yeah. a local creature. They are birds that travel the entire length of the world. Um, so they became global. And so I stretched out from that small place into a big place, the entire planet, and made a film about shorebirds that all migrate from the south of the world to the north and back again 
annually. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly no shortage of of shorebirds to focus on, lots with really impressive migrations. But you've chosen three with particularly interesting uh, dynamics, interesting places that they visit. The the forest in Curlew, as you said, and Red Knot, which I think is a, a bird that a lot of people, well, birders around the world are, are familiar with, and Hudsonian Godwit, which uh, is one of my favorite uh, North American shorebirds. Was there a, a particular reason why you chose these three? Far Eastern Curlew seems fairly obvious because that's where your interest in, in these birds and this phenomenon came from. But what about the other two? Um, so whenever I make a documentary, whether it be natural history or any film for that matter, because I also make science films, I normally go directly to a conference um, or a series of conferences around the world and meet the world, the world experts I did exactly that with the um, with the shorebird film, and ended up in Alaska of all places, and a range of other places, going to conferences, meeting great experts. And so we sort of um, pegged the film not just around the birds, but also about the, around the brilliant people working with them. Yeah. So we follow scientists in this film very closely, and as it turned out, some of the experts were working in this field. Um, the red knot expert Jan van Gils, um, as a European was very focused on the red knot, and that particular red knot isn't the American red knot we know. Right, It actually flies from Africa right up to Taimir Peninsula in Russia and back again. So, you know, these these kind of, these people became specialists um, in our film, and so that gave us a bit of focus on which species we should follow. Uh, What do you find most interesting about the people that study these shorebirds? Because I I think that people who are, you know, delve so deeply into this single topic tend to be a little eccentric, certainly endearing and very earnest in their passion for this for this subject. Um, did you find them to be interesting subjects for a documentary in addition to the birds themselves? By way of context, one of the films I made before this film many years ago was about earthworms called The Worm Hunters. Uh-huh. And that, that film introduced me to scientists who are very passionate, very focused, very dedicated. And I kind of drew parallels between being a filmmaker and what you have to do to make films and scientists who need to mm-hmm. who need to work in very specific areas. So the earthworm scientist one day turned to me and said, you know, he said, there's nothing more on the planet that that, that will determine the fate of humanity as we know it than biodiversity. Like loss of biodiversity is basically a loss to humanity. It's a loss to, it's a civilizational loss um, because we won't survive without biodiversity on the planet as we know it. I decided to apply that then to shorebirds um, and because actually shorebirds tell us a lot about biodiversity and threats. So that, that, became, that, that was kind of one of the, the focal points, I suppose, on this film. Um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the tone of this question, but let's go back to the beginning. Sorry, <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> we can go down the path, yeah. <laughs> it's very early in the but morning. What did here. you find interesting, I guess, about the, about the scientists that, that are working on these shorebirds? Yeah, so I was, that's my whole point. Thank you. That, that what you'll find in common between all scientists of the world is passion. And, you know, as mm-hmm. a filmmaker, of course, we hold that in common as well. But the passion that I found between the, fil- the people working with earthworms and the people working with birds was very similar. They're very mm-hmm. dedicated. They can be considered by some people to be a little bit nerdy because <laughs> they're, they're very focused. But that's cop to of, that. No, we, we, we wear it, yeah. <laughs> I love that because yeah. I love people who are committed and, and dedicated yeah. and, and will basically bring um, not just the best of themselves but the best of their community to the process. And I've even found with, with um, shorebird specialists, they bring their families in. And I loved meeting mm-hmm. families who were working – and very dedicated to shorebirds. So often it'd be parents and their children both working together side by side on the field to help conserve shorebirds. So, you know, it's kind of 
I mean, it's not just science. It's also, it's also passion. And with passion comes community commitment. And I love that. One of the things that really, I think, is appealing about shorebirds as a, as a story to tell about conservation is the fact that the threats that they face are threats, you know, it just absolutely runs the gannet, which is, we're talking about climate change impacting the ability of these birds to get to the right places at the right time. We're talking about development uh, at spots that they have to, that are critical spots for them to stop over during their migratory. Like every single, you know, major conservation issue that environmentalists are dealing with is represented in shorebirds. That's right. Uh, But what's great also in that um, is understanding that you can make changes. And that's what the film mm-hmm. really helps understand deeply is that although some of these threats seem and feel perhaps insurmountable at points, deep down there's, we can all do something. And like we know, mm-hmm. for instance, with farmers, I mean, they can change some of their practice, some of the timings of yeah. the cropping, yeah. some of the timings that they, their next changes. We know with um, energy production, with wind turbines, for instance, they can actually be turned off. They do not have to run 365 days a year, um, 24 hours a day. For the two weeks that shorebirds pass through their territory, they can actually shut down the turbines. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of quite good to get intelligent about what we do, and I think that was really the underpinning. Yeah. The underpinning um, principle here is actually that you know we can still get on as human beings and live well, but we can do that a bit more intelligently and and embrace mm-hmm. the nature and the ecology around us and benefit from that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've been a fan of of nature documentaries for as long as I've been a fan of nature and certainly PBS and the program Nature as a huge influence on me as a as a young naturalist. Um I'm most struck in comparing those decades old documentaries and these modern de- documentaries by the way technology has sort of enabled documentarians to to get really incredible footage of their subjects. Like there there are there are shots of flying shorebirds uh in this in this documentary that are that are breathtaking. And there are ways to sort of incorporate drone footage that give you a really unique perspective on on these birds. You've no doubt seen these these advances change the way that you approach making a film. Has how has technology in the filmmaking realm sort of allowed you to expand your vision and tell stories like this more effectively? Um, so I will, we'll talk firstly not about camera equipment, but rather tracking equipment. Because for us in this film, yeah, of course, it's GPS trackers that allow us to basically access the positioning of the birds all around the world. Without that, this would have been mm-hmm. an almost impossible film to make. But with very mm. accurate um, GPS trackers on the birds, we were able to know exactly where they're going from and where they're going to and the routes they're taking along the way. And, of course, that became the story of our film. Um, where do the birds yeah. go and what do they encounter en route? Um, so firstly, that technology has really changed how we shoot because, of, co- of course, we can be much more efficient if we know that the bird is there and we're going right. in to find it rather than just, you know, haphazardly looking around for something somewhere. Um, yeah. I would say, like, the other thing that really helped us hugely on this project was the fact that new cameras are very light. And because it was mm-hmm. really hard bringing cameras into locations, um, Mudflats was were one thing, but of course, tundra in the Arctic also is quite difficult. We were spending up to 15 hours a day, each day, walking kilometers and kilometers looking for red knots um, over three weeks to find one. And um, those, wow. um, but those light cameras made that possible because you know, if we had been yeah. taking conventional equipment. Oh my goodness, I can't even imagine. No, no. And we couldn't bring those kind of crews in, like large crews. Yeah. Because being discreet. It's quite important with birds. Um, the third yeah. thing I'd say was really, really helped us was drones. And I don't mean just 
flying drones um, without thinking about it because, of course, we are always working with the interests of mm-hmm. birds at heart first and foremost. I mean, their well-being is our film. So we will always make mm-hmm. sure when we fly a drone that involves a bird anywhere that we're not disturbing the birds, and that's very important. But that said, we were able to use the drones very carefully um, to shoot some of the birds in ways that we could never have shot them otherwise yeah. very carefully. Like I said, we would use the drones in quite a stealthy way. We understood that drones would be to the birds become a predator because they look high up like an eagle. So we wouldn't shoot like that with the drones um, ever. Um, the drone, if mm-hmm. ever a drone was used um, and, and involved the birds, it was always basically hugging um, the surface of the earth and just creeping across mm-hmm. and very, very slowly <laughs> and very carefully. And we got quite good at that um, so that we were able to shoot some birds that probably we wouldn't have other had, otherwise had shots of in ways that weren't disturbing the birds but still allowing us to get close up without having to walk in. Birders are certainly familiar with how wary shorebirds can be and how difficult they can be to approach. So that, that's really impressive that you're able to get some of the incredible shots uh, in the film. Thanks, Nate. And the other thing we did, which is worth mentioning, is, is basically um, got um, um, wireless technologies working on the camera. So that means mm-hmm. we could just put a camera out in a mud flat, walk away into the bush, and just let it do its job with us basically remote controlling it from a distance. And that mm-hmm. um, was a little bit unconventional and a bit difficult, but it did pay off um, because, of course, as you would know, like particularly faris and curlews, for instance, I mean, the chance of getting close to them is next to nothing. They're very careful to be cautious of animals and people. So be able to step back quite a way and just remote control the camera was really helpful. Yeah, it's hard not to see how similar technological advances have influenced the way that bird researchers do their jobs as well. And another thing that you highlight in this film, you know, the same sort of technology that makes it possible for you to get close to some of these birds and get some incredible footage is also the same technology that allows birders to follow these birds across hemispheres and uh, see where they're going and use that information to, to protect some of the places that they need to be protected. It's, it's fascinating. Absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, I, I had no idea just how much um, development has, ha- has happened along coastlines of the world. So places like mm-hmm. Wudong in China mainland, we know that there are about 10,000 kilometres of seawalls that have been built along coastlines. I mean, it's longer yeah. than the Great Wall of China. And with that has come a lot of change to, to landscapes. Um, so, you know, I think, Thankfully, in China, the government seems to basically be coming around to initiating some really good changes for the better along the coastline. I'm hoping that will stick um, because we know, for instance, that most of the damage done to shorebird populations here in Australia is most likely has happened along their midpoint stopover places. And that was became a through line mm-hmm. through the film. We knew that basically also in the Americas, like a, for instance, there's quite a lot of farming in the central yeah. in the central parts of the Americas, I mean the US, for instance. So, um, so these were also these also became concerns for the film. Um, and then, of course, you know you can't ignore the impact of cities around the world on landscapes and and what they do to flight paths. So, um, it's it look it's incredibly um, what would be the word for it um, complex, but also I think there is hope. And I, what the hope I find in this film is that basically it has it helps understand that what shorebirds do is bring people together. They bring countries together on a common cause. And that's what I love about the film is that actually ultimately I think there is hope because actually as, as humans we're great at collaborating. It is our strength. Mm-hmm. 
when we work together as human beings, we, we become so much stronger than we work solely. And I think the same applies to countries. When countries come together and work on conservation together, we come, become very powerful. So I, I do have hope. Yeah, that's an interesting point to bring up because one of my favorite parts of the film was the stretch where the Far Eastern Curlew, uh, AAD, was tracked uh, all the way to Taiwan and they essentially instituted a you know island-wide search by the birding community on Taiwan to find this one single Far Eastern Curlew. It, it goes to show like there's this community of people who are fascinated about these birds, even a bird like a Far Eastern Curlew. And they're, they're willing to help out on these sort of, um, you know, kind of a wild curlew chase, essentially, to, to help the researchers and to, to make these connections very explicit. That's right. Now, I've got to say, we, we just came back from Taiwan mm-hmm. um, a couple of days ago, and we've just been in Taiwan um, pitching the film into cinemas. And what I loved about Taiwan is that passion. Yeah. The passion you feel within community for birding. I mean, people there are really Huge into it. And community. Yeah. We're, we're very lucky. So it was interesting that nobody in Australia would ever have heard of AAD, but you know, half of Taiwan knew about AAD before <laughs> before AAD arrived. So yeah. you know, it just shows that a different attitude and and a kind of respect. And um for, for and so it's just wonderful to find that you know, here in the middle of, you know, the Asian region, you've got a country who are really stepping up and actually um, expressing appreciation for what they've got and making sure that they do conserve what they can for it. Um, they've got something in, in, in Taiwan that's worth knowing about called Restaurant for, for Birds. Oh, a really? Restaurant for Birds is basically that's where farms turn into um, oh, yeah. sort of stopover zones so that the rice paddies become actually a restaurant for the birds and the farmers understand that. They open up the farms for a few weeks so the birds can come in and feed up and then continue on their way. And then the farms get back to farm, the farmers get back to making the farms productive again. But it's kind of just a great attitude. And I think we can see that sort of expressed in other places as well. I mean, luckily in the film in the US, we saw exactly the same attitude from some of the farmers in the Dakotas who are basically quite prepared to basically understand that they need conserving the birds mm-hmm. and they'll do what they can to basically look after territory on their farms. Certainly in the United States, we are fortunate in that we have things like the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and other sort of legislative initiatives that have protected a lot of our bird populations. You, you talk a little bit about the hunting pressure that a lot of these birds are on. One fortunate thing for the Americas is that, you know, the hunting is very strictly regulated, particularly in the U.S. and Canada, where these where these birds are spending so much of their time, so much in the in the Arctic tundra. Um, in the North America is relatively protected, which has actually been a great benefit, not only to game birds like ducks, which also use the prey potholes, but also these shorebirds, which use them um, almost as much. And that policy of, of looking after waterfowl, waterfowl in the in the U.S. has, I mean, for people who would go out basically to hunt them, mm-hmm. um, that that preservation of those habitats has absolutely assisted shorebirds as well, as you say. So I think it's really important to say yeah. that there's there's... Yeah, you can do a lot. To that end, you know, birders, naturalists, environmentalists are certainly, you know, sort of always cognizant of the human-derived threats to to birds in general and, and these birds in particular. I was also kind of struck by the the incursion of modern geopolitics into this story as well. The Dutch researcher working with red knots was not able to follow his study subjects to their breeding territories in Siberia because travel to Russia has been restricted because of the invasion of Ukraine. Um, it's an impact to conservation that I don't think I recognized. In fact, you know, all three of the species that you highlighted in this documentary spend some of their time in Russia and use parts of that 
that the tundra there. And of course, uh, Russia has the largest extent of Arctic tundra in the world just because the country is so broad. It goes to show how these sort of non-conservation-minded actions impact the conservation of these birds. How do you think that fits into this story? Um, well, as I said earlier, um, as many scientists say, we as a country are only a link in a chain, right. a chain of links. And we need to always remember that we're just a small part. Australia is just one link mm-hmm. out of about 20 countries that, that span the, the territory between here, for instance, and Russia and back. So losing one link in a chain breaks a chain, mm-hmm. unfortunately. I think we need to apply the same thing to these geopolitics. When we can't go in and research the birds as they've been researched for 20 or 30 years, the loss is quite formidable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people have invested their lives into research, and it's really quite important that that research continues when and where it can. I really felt in the film for Jan van Gils not being yeah. able to go into Russia because, of course, those birds they've been following very closely. They tag them and track. They're tracking them into there for good reasons because they know that there's a major issue facing those birds currently. So, not be, to be able to go was, of course, an absolute blow. We were um, when that happened um, en route to the shoot, um, and of course that. We met Jan van Gils in Netherlands and we were about to go up to Russia with him when he got the news. So we had to rewrite the film on the run. And I was literally on a plane um, by this stage going, what are we going to do with our story? Because we had lost two-thirds of our stories Mm -hmm. um, in in a single moment. Um, So we, uh, and that sort of was quite significant to lose the ends of each one of those stories. So we had to rewrite the film and I rewrote it on the plane to Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> and where we, where we re- thankfully, thankfully for the fabulous support from America, we were able to go into the US and, and continue making the film. We researchers were able to continue on with their research. How fortunate that Red Knot is a species that's found all around the world and that so we were able to get something from the Red Knots in Alaska so you weren't completely lost. That's right. And of course, it's not the same subspecies because, of course, there are, I think, five or six from memory. But, um, but nonetheless, they were able to continue the same question, research question as to why are red knots basically reducing in size, mm-hmm. um, which is a big, a big question around, around extinction, actually. So, and the effects of climate change. Yeah, it was certainly one that I was not aware of. It, you know, here in the United States, I should say, we are red knots, the ones that I'm most familiar with, which is the population that migrates down the East Coast every year. And the big conservation worry with that species has been the har- overharvesting of horseshoe crabs in the Chesapeake Bay that causes, they rely on the, the breeding, the laying of eggs of the horseshoe crabs to get that final burst of energy in the spring to, to carry on up to, up to Northern Canada where they breed. Um, and so, you know, overharvesting of that species has been a worry. Like, what does that mean for not only red knots, uh, but also, you know, ready turns down sanderlings, a couple other shorebird species that have not quite as extreme migrations, but long migrations themselves. I was not aware of the issue with the red knot population that breeds in Siberia and winters in West Africa the, with, the, with the clams. That was completely new to me and, and fascinating, actually, even if it is troubling. Absolutely. And actually, what's also important, you know, I mean, every single shorebird faces um, sort of challenges, mm-hmm. I've got to say, in certain contexts. And the other bird that you see a lot of in the film, but we don't talk about much its situation, is the Western Sandpiper. Mm-hmm. Um, this bird, actually, as we know, flies right up the you know, west coast of America's um, to Alaska. But, of course, one of its key stopover points is actually Boundary Bay in Canada, near Vancouver. 
And of course, there it basically faces an incredible challenge, which is basically a massive coal terminal mm. being built right on its territory. Um, so, and, and of course, a, a coal terminal that will badly impact on its capacity to eat what's called biofilm mm. off the off the surface of the water. There, every single bird we found faces certain challenges in certain places. So, you know, the red knots, yes, horseshoes, crabs. Certainly, but many other shorebirds are yeah. facing similar challenges, but in different contexts. Yeah, it's like the Leo Tolstoy quote, I guess. Every shorebird is troubling for its own reasons. Um, uh, what do you What do you hope that people take away from this documentary? Uh, people take away um, awe, yeah. a, a feeling of awe, how incredible shorebirds are, and also I hope a feeling of hope. Because I think at the end of the film, we do leave off basically showing community rising up and basically mm-hmm. becoming active, active in basically standing up for the rights of shorebirds to, to exist mm-hmm. and saying no to certain things like development. And we certainly see that here in Australia, people standing up and saying, we want faris and curlews and know that development can go somewhere else. It doesn't have to be right there. It's a big country in Australia. We can put that development anywhere. Why put 3,600 units right on top of a territory that belongs to a critically endangered bird? So um, so I, I hope that people will become um, active um, in, in their areas and, and, become, and, came, and become engaged. And I hope people also take away an understanding that they can involve their friends and family in birding. Mm-hmm. And in a very successful way, that birding isn't just for high-end scientists. It's actually for everyday people to really engage in and understand and enjoy. There's nothing more beautiful than on the entire planet, as far as I'm concerned, than going out on a, on a gorgeous afternoon with friends and family or morning and just engaging in what you would find in your environment in a meaningful way. So if that's shorebirds, you, know, you can just take some great binoculars sit down in a beautiful, quiet place and just enjoy watching them, taking notes, add into some of the great apps that are out there for birders and just, you know, getting into basically nature. One of the things that I love about bird migration is the fact that I, as just some regular schmo going out there and seeing a red knot on the beach of North Carolina, feel connected to these places that these birds go to. I feel connected to the birders and conservationists in Argentina, where the bird spends the winter to the people that um, see the birds as they're traveling through the Caribbean or anywhere along the coast, all the way up to Canada where they breed. I, I, I love that. I, I really you know embrace that connection. And it, it's wonderful to think about how far these birds go and how fortunate we are to be sharing that one spot uh, on, this, on these incredible journeys. Absolutely. Yeah. They're the true international travelers of our planet. I mean, partially, but not just because they travel distances because other birds do like turns, mm-hmm. but because they do it under propulsion. Yeah. They have an engine and that's called their body. Yeah. So they are literally flapping their wings the whole way yeah. and not touching down on water. So they are just incredible. incredible There's nothing more beautiful to realize than that, just that they are capable of flying, you know, days and days yeah. um, under their own steam. Absolutely. And Nate, I mean, I didn't want to talk about my accent, but I'll say one more thing, just if you want to just record it, yeah, yeah, if, yeah. if it's worth it. That, as you know, I, I maybe you don't know, but I, at the end of making the film, I had a, quite a terrible accident and fell and broke 16 bones. Oh, wow, okay. And um, cracked my skull and ended up in hospital for two months full-time oh, and then six months part-time recovering. Um, but the one thing that brought me out of my coma, because I was – pretty much unconscious for three weeks with shorebirds. Huh. And that might sound crazy, but I started dreaming um, while I was in hospital in ICU and 
I was dreaming of flying with the shorebirds I've been filming. <laughs> they, they actually brought me back to life. And I love the fact that that, to me, just taught me something about birding because I realized that actually we look at birds and we sort of, and we see them as something sometimes as other to us. But what we need to, well, what I needed to understand deeply is that they're, we're actually very connected to animals that we exist with. And so it's almost like a sort of spiritual thing in one respect to be put back in touch with the birds in on another level so they i feel like they kind of brought me back to life after almost dying um so you know i feel deeply grateful for that experience and i just wanted to share that because it's a little bit different to what other people might talk about in terms of birding absolutely well i mean it's a it's a wonderful film and i'm, I'm i i hope people take from it uh, everything that you you put into it and it's it's beautiful a lot of great footage a lot of great information a lot of hope as you say Randall Wood is the director, writer, and producer of, of Flyways, the untold story of migratory shorebirds, which aired on PBS's program, Nature. It is available, I believe, streaming on Amazon Prime, on the PBS app, and also on YouTube. I will make sure to have links to all that stuff uh, in the show notes so you can check it out. Please do. It is it's very nice. Uh, congrats, Randall, and thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks, Nate. Thank you so much. All the very best. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Don't forget to join the ABA if you enjoy this podcast. You'll be eligible for a lot of great benefits, including our fantastic magazines, all the online stuff like the magazine archive. You can go back and find magazines from the 1970s, our new identification portal, discounts to partners like Olympus, Video Books, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and more special shout outs this week to George Andrews of Indian Trail, North Carolina, Ruby Grewell of New York, New York, and Kathleen Schmidt and family of Tehachapi, California, all of whom recently joined the American Birding Association and noted this podcast as a reason, not the only reason, a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. I hope you get a lot out of it. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, who urges folks not to confuse the WGAC ornithological effort with who gives a crap, which is, I'm not kidding, a brand of eco-friendly toilet paper and no doubt has a different set of lumps in mind for their product. Technical production is by John Lowry, who was confused to hear that the West Gippsland Art Center was engaged in bird taxonomy, aside from Laird enthusiasm and Warrigal. Believe me. There are people in Australia's Victoria State who are here for that one. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Neese, who find it very coincidental that the Bird Taxonomy Summit has the same name as the World Government Awareness Campaign and wonders if that isn't what they want you to think. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere as American Birding Association. On Blue Sky, we are at ABA Birds. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom, catch you next week.